Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Chris Smith and Kat Army. Coming up, why the earthquake in China could spell disaster for giant pandas. The researchers found that nearly a quarter of the panda habitat in this area had been completely destroyed and much of the rest of it was really fragmented and damaged. Now, this is almost as bad as destroying the habitat because it greatly increases the chances of pandas becoming extinct by breaking up their population. How our lungs, and not just our tongues, can taste. What they've been doing is, or they reasoned, that the cells that line our lungs may be able to detect or pick up various chemicals that could be dangerous, such as noxious substances like toxins, or perhaps even the chemical signals that are given out by bacteria to signal infection. And how the shape of the earth, like animals, can evolve. This is a pattern that emerges over many thousands of years, but by writing the equations to describe these erosion processes and solving them in a computer, we could fast-forward the evolution of the landscape over those many thousands of years. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to this week in science history, which, in 1968, saw the death of Otto Hahn, the German chemist who co-discovered nuclear fission. That's all on the way. Now, here's some sad news for pandas. Um, our listeners may remember the massive earthquake measuring eight on the Richter scale that struck the Sichuan region of southern China back in May 2008. Now, not only did it leave around 4.3 million people homeless and, and killed uh, many thousands of people, but a new study shows it also means bad news for the few remaining giant pandas living in the wild. So why is it affecting them? Well, this is research from Wei Hua Zhu in Beijing, who publishes uh, his results in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment this week. Now, the scientists carried out a survey of the habitat of giant pandas living in the south Minshan region of China. This was right next to the epicentre of the earthquake. And they compared what it was like and what the habitats for pandas were like before and after the earthquake. And presumably what you're going to say is that it made some kind of impact. Um, some kind of impact is, is pretty much an understatement. The researchers found that nearly a quarter of the panda habitat in this area had been completely destroyed and much of the rest of it was really fragmented and damaged. Now, this is almost as bad as destroying the habitat because it greatly increases the chances of pandas becoming extinct by breaking up their population, destroying breeding and feeding sites. And as we know, pandas aren't terribly good at the old breeding to start with. Now, Zhu thinks that up to 60% of the wild giant panda population may have been affected in some way by this earthquake and really there's only you know uh, hundreds maybe a, a thousand or so wild giant pandas left in the world so this is pretty bad news so it could potentially push them over the extinction threshold which is a worry um is it unrescuable though is there anything we can do to reverse the problem well now we know this problem is here the researchers think that one good idea might be to develop specially protected corridors between these remaining habitats and they would encourage pandas to move between these patches of land that are left and because a lot of the earthquake damage actually happened in areas outside panda reserves they suggest that these areas outside reserves should maybe become reserves as well and of course they ask that towns and cities that are rebuilt to house the homeless do uh, take account of the pandas and uh, take them into consideration. It just goes to show it's not just humans that are impacted by earthquakes. Thank you, Kat. Anyway, from pandas to lungs, and we're well acquainted with the fact that our tongues are very good at tasting things, but who would have thought that your lungs also potentially have the capacity to taste things? This is a study published in the journal Science this week by Alok Shah and his colleagues. 
who are based at the University of Iowa. And what they've been doing is, or they reasoned, that the cells that line our lungs may be able to detect or pick up various chemicals that could be dangerous, such as noxious substances like toxins, or perhaps even the chemical signals that are given out by bacteria to signal infection. So what they did was to take some cells from the lining of the airways, and they did a microarray analysis, a genetic test, to see which genes were turned on in those cells. And one of the families of genes they spotted coming up again and again and again was a family called the T2R receptors. And this family of genes are used in the tongue to detect bitter substances, which suggest that these cilia, tiny hairs that cover the cells that line the airways, cilia are there to help move mucus around, can actually pick up bitter flavours in the air that you breathe in. Now, this sounds just a bit crazy. Why would your lungs want to taste things? Or are they not really tasting them? Are they using these receptors for another purpose? Well, quite. We don't normally put food into our lungs. If you do, you're at danger of getting an aspiration pneumonia, which can be life-threatening. Bad news. So why should your lungs want to be able to taste things? Well, the answer is that the cells that are expressing these receptors... Whenever they see a bitter flavour or a bitter chemical, bitter tasting chemical, they produce a huge surge of calcium inside the cell. And the researchers did experiments in the dish using other bitter chemicals, including one called denatonium. And if you put this in your mouth, it tastes horrible. But basically what this did was to make a big surge of calcium in the cilia, and then all of the cells around the cilia also had a big spike of calcium and became more active. And that what was happening is that there are electrical connections called gap junctions between the cilia and the cells next door. And so the cilia are presumably detecting the presence of these substances on the surface of the airway and then telling all of the cells around the area that there's something that is nasty getting into the airways. And that means that then the lungs could perhaps change their behaviour or increase their defences in order to, say, ward off infection, produce more mucus, for instance, if you've inhaled um, particles of smoke or something and you want to boost the amount of mucus in order to ward off the danger or help to clean the lungs more. It's all very well to sort of say that there's this signalling in response to bitter things. What sort of bitter compounds um, might your lungs encounter during everyday yeah, good life? good point. Well, um, one of the interesting examples they give in their paper is that Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a bacterial infection, which is a major problem for people with uh, cystic fibrosis, these bacteria produce chemicals called lactones and these are chemicals that the bacteria use to talk to one another. They do something called quorum sensing. When the bacteria reach a certain threshold population, they secrete these chemicals and this massively stimulates the bacteria to grow and increase their numbers. So what the researchers are saying is that this in a normal person could be a way in which they pick up the fact that these bacteria are trying to invade the lung and this boosts lung defences. But in people with cystic fibrosis, perhaps because they have the problem with their mucus being very sticky and they get lots and lots of these bacteria Bacteria. If you overstimulate this system, perhaps it then contributes to the lung damage that you get, and we need to check that one out. But another poisonous and also bitter substance which lungs are frequently um, in contact with is nicotine. Because nicotine is a plant alkaloid, and just like caffeine, another plant alkaloid, it tastes bitter. Nicotine, therefore, probably can also stimulate these receptors. And perhaps some of the chronic damage done to the lung by smoking isn't just down to the non-nicotine components of cigarettes, which are frequently the ones blamed for everything. It could be that the nicotine itself is also affecting the physiology and behaviour of these cilia, including the process called metaplasia, where cells eventually lose their cilia and they just become flat squamous epithelial cells. And that's why the lungs of chronic smokers don't clean themselves very well because the cilia disappear and they can't get rid of the mucus. So interesting stuff. Um, yeah, very odd finding that. Uh, who'd have thought it? Anyway, now there's uh, some new research published in the journal Nature Medicine today which suggests 
suggests that scientists who are working on diabetes could do with cozying up to immunologists, as the latest data suggests that the two fields are actually much more closely linked than previously thought. In what respect? Well, these are two papers published by scientists in the US, and in the first study, researchers led by Gopu Shing looked at two commonly used allergy medicines called Zaditor and Chromalin, which sound like superheroes rather than medicines. But these work by calming down mast cells. These are immune cells in the body that provoke allergic reactions. But they also found, intriguingly, that the drugs could help reduce both obesity and type 2 diabetes in mice. Seems strange to think that cells linked to allergy and inflammation are also linked to diabetes. It's absolutely fascinating because the researchers found this out by they're looking at fat tissue. They looked at fat tissue from obese and diabetic mice and humans and they found that they had unusually high numbers of these mast cells compared with fat tissue from people with a, a normal weight. But they wanted to find out, was it the fat that was attracting the mast cells or the mast cells helping to trigger excessive deposition mm, of fat? It's a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? So how did they do that? Well, that's what they did. They tested these mast cell controlling drugs on mice that were either given a healthy diet or a so-called cafeteria diet. This is a really fatty, sugary junk food diet for mice. And they found that the drugs helped prevent mice from becoming obese or diabetic, even on a crap diet. Poor diet, sorry. Uh, But although the drugs are used to treat allergies in humans, we don't yet have evidence that they can prevent obesity uh, or diabetes in humans. And you mentioned there's another study. Yes, there's a second paper, and this is uh, research led by Marcus Feuerer. They discovered that a type of immune cell called a regulatory T-cell plays a role in liaising between the immune system and the metabolism, and this helps to keep inflammation in fat tissue in check. Now, they found that fat tissue from obese and diabetic mice and humans has unusually low levels of these good regulatory cells, but high levels of bad immune cells, such as things called macrophages and these mast cells. And they found the complete opposite in fat from animals and humans with a healthy weight. So what's the clinical issue here? Is this going to map onto humans? Are we going to be able to do something about the fact that about one person in three, if we carry on the way we're going, is going to be obese and therefore at risk of these kind of conditions like diabetes soon? Yeah, it's really interesting. Still, It's still early days, um, but it does suggest that inflammation in fatty tissue may play a role in obesity and the development of diabetes. Now, it's also fascinating because we know that being overweight or obese can increase your risk of diseases like cancer and some types of heart disease. And these are two illnesses that are also increasingly linked to inflammation. So perhaps the whole thing's connected. Now, it's really important to stress that popping a few over-the-counter allergy remedies is not going to reverse obesity and magically make you thin, more's the pity. But the results certainly open the door to a whole new area of research, and it's one that the scientists have called immunometabolism, and hopefully this should lead to some really interesting results in years to come. We've also found that getting a good night's sleep is critical to being able to regulate your blood sugar well as well. And people who are having disturbed sleep, like I am, with two small children at home, tend to have worse control of their blood glucose and they're more resistant to their own insulin than people who have a good night's sleep. And paradoxically, sleeping longer actually helps people to lose weight for various reasons. So there you go. Now, if you glance out of the aeroplane window as you're surging, not across the ocean, but across land, how could you have missed those wonderful ridges and valleys you see and not not failed to notice that they form very regular patterns. It's almost like the teeth of a comb. Why should that be? Is it just a freak of nature, or is there actually a mechanistic reason why it's happening? Well, Dr Taylor Perron, who's a researcher at MIT in America, has got a paper in the journal Nature this week, and he and his colleagues have cracked the reason it happens. Hello, Taylor. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, why do we see these amazing patterns in nature? Well, we started wondering about this uh, pattern for the same reason that the people you just referred to looking at the airplane window did. 
Uh, whenever you see a pattern that's this regular and widespread in nature, it's got to be telling you something about the, uh, the physics that are, that are generating it. So we're talking and, here about where you see a, a hillside, then a ridge or a river between it, then another hillside, and so on. You get that beautiful repeating pattern. That's right. It's been recognized by geologists uh, for more than a century that there is this very even spacing among rivers or equivalently uh, between the, uh, the ridges that separate them. So how did you set about trying to solve this conundrum? We first uh, put together a theoretical model that was based on some field observations we made. So we went uh, to a bunch of sites around the United States where we saw this pattern very well expressed. And we looked on the ground and, uh, to see what was happening there, shaping the landscape. And we ended up putting together a model that combines two basic processes that are competing against one another, that creates this even spacing of ridges and valleys. And what are those? And it, it's, it's a basic balance between one set of processes, uh, and chief among them is river incision into soil or rock, that tends to cut into the landscape and create valleys. That tends to make them spaced more closely together. But competing against river incision is soil creep, which is the gradual downslope movement of soil due mainly to stirring by organisms that are burrowing in the ground. And that tends to fill in the valleys, round off the ridgelines, and make them spaced more widely apart. So but why should they be so regular, though, Taylor? Well, why, why not just have a, a few here and there? Why this beautiful regular pattern we see? Well, there's an interesting story there, too, and uh, it actually has a bit of a Darwinian flavor to it. Uh, this is one of the, the, uh, the best parts of the, uh, the study for us. This is a pattern that emerges over many thousands of years, but by writing the equations to describe these erosion processes and solving them in a computer, we could fast forward the evolution of the landscape over those many thousands of years. And here's what we see happening. When a landscape first starts to form, the initial valleys that develop are unevenly spaced. But some of them are a little bit larger than others, and some of them are further from their neighbors than others. And the ones that start out bigger or spaced further from their neighbors are able to capture more water and therefore erode more rapidly. And they grow faster, and they pinch out their smaller neighbors. And so it's this competition for water that ultimately leads to an even spacing. So presumably you can tweak your formula to accommodate the fact that some areas of Earth are drier, some are wetter, some have harder rocks, some have softer rocks, and all of those things will presumably affect this erosion competition that you've got going on. It's, it's exactly this that we're ultimately trying to get at. How do major factors like the type of rock that the landscape is made of, like the intensity of biological activity and uh, climatic effects like rainfall, influence this wavelength? And by comparing these different sites and also using the theoretical model to explore this, we have found that there are some pretty significant effects there. Uh, for example, if you have a landscape that's eroded into harder rock, the ridges and valleys will generally be spaced wider apart. And we also found that in places that are wetter, where that get uh, more mean annual rainfall, you also have a wider valley spacing. So there very definitely are some fundamental controls so, on this pattern. So given that you've got this very old record of erosion and you can infer, and you now know because of your formula, how they form and over what sorts of rates, does this mean that written into the landscape is quite literally a record of past climate in the form of rainfall because of the erosion pattern? That's right. Uh, and that is one of the things that this pattern is, uh, is recording. The, uh, the challenge for us next is teasing out the relative importance of these different effects. So, for example, we know that rainfall has this, uh, has this effect of making uh, valleys spaced wider apart, but we're not exactly sure of uh, what the absolute magnitude of that effect is in a given place because it's kind of convolved with the bedrock strength and other factors. But ultimately, yes, there is a, a record here that we, we can start to interpret now.
And just very briefly to finish, the last time I spoke with you, you were discovering why the coastline of an ancient ocean on Mars seemed to rise and fall by up to three kilometres in places. Does this work also inform those amazing, amazing rivers and valley type systems that we think we can see on Mars with Mars Express and the other things that are looking at the surface of Mars from, from space? I think it does. One of the, uh, the things that uh, first inspired us to look into this problem was not just observations of landscapes on Earth, but also images that we saw of Mars where you do see mind-bendingly regular patterns of uh, erosional features on the sides of impact craters all over the planet. And although the, the same exact processes are not at work, clearly the soil creep on Mars is not driven by biological activity, but more likely by, say, uh, the activity of ice in the ground, we think it's the same basic competition between valley cutting and valley filling processes that does it there. So one of the part of the appeal of this is that we can now go to landscapes either on Earth or on other planets where all we have is remote observations and start to learn something about how the landscape has developed over many years. So it's not just aliens then. Thank you very much, Taylor. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Thanks. Taylor Perron, he's a researcher at MIT in America. He's got a paper in this week's Nature explaining why we see those regular patterns of ridges and valleys forming across the landscape. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now, Sarah Castor Perry looks back to 1968 and the death of Otto Hahn, a man famous for his discoveries in nuclear chemistry and his strong opposition to injustices during the Second World War. This week in science history saw in 1968 the death of Otto Hahn, the German chemist who co-discovered nuclear fission, was a courageous opposer of Jewish persecution by the Nazis, a campaigner against the use of nuclear power as a weapon and is considered by many to be the father of nuclear chemistry. Born in March 1879 in Frankfurt, Hans showed an interest in chemistry from a young age. Instead of following his father's wishes that he become an architect, he would perform chemistry experiments in the family laundry room as a child and after leaving school went to study chemistry at the universities of Marburg and Munich. He completed his doctorate in organic chemistry in 1901. In the early years of the 20th century, Hahn worked at University College London, where he discovered the radioactive substance radiothorium, later shown to be an isotope of the element thorium. He moved in 1905 to McGill University in Canada to work under Ernest Rutherford, the eminent nuclear physicist. Here he discovered three more radioactive substances, which he called thorium-C, radium-D and radioactinium. Returning to Germany, in 1906, Hahn discovered what he called mesothorium-1, now known as radium-228. This element has been hugely important in the medical world as a cheaper alternative to radium-226, discovered by Pierre and Marie Curie. This discovery led to his first Nobel Prize nomination in 1914, although he did not win. His research was interrupted by the First World War, where he was conscripted to the research team looking into producing poison gas for use in the trenches. In 1916, he returned to Berlin and after the war resumed research into radioactive substances with his collaborator and friend Lisa Meitner, developing a new field of research known as applied radiochemistry. In 1938, the Nazis carried out the Austrian Anschluss. This made life very difficult for Meitner. She was of Jewish descent and lost her Austrian citizenship. With Otto Hahn's help, she managed to escape to Sweden, and the two remained in contact throughout the Second World War. In December 1938... Hahn and his assistant, Fritz Strassmann, made the discovery that won Hahn the 1944 Nobel Prize for Chemistry, the discovery of nuclear fission. 
Other scientists, such as Enrico Fermi and Ida Nodak, had suggested that bombarding heavy nuclei such as uranium might lead to the production of smaller nuclei, and Fermi and his team had already begun experiments in 1934. However, it was Hahn and Strassmann who succeeded in producing barium atoms as a product of the fission process. Their results were proven by Lisa Meitner's nephew, also in exile in Sweden, in January 1939. Nuclear fission is a nuclear reaction that involves the breakdown of large nuclei of atoms such as uranium-235 or plutonium-239 into several smaller atomic nuclei, usually initiated by bombarding the nucleus with particles called neutrons. As well as fission products such as strontium and xenon, the reaction also releases neutrons, electromagnetic waves and a lot of energy in the process, around 10 million times more energy than a chemical fuel such as petrol or TNT. It is this which powers nuclear power stations and nuclear weapons. Hahn continued to work on nuclear fission throughout the Second World War, whilst also intervening on behalf of colleagues being persecuted or threatened by the Nazis. Captured by British forces in 1945 as part of Operation Epsilon and transported to Cambridgeshire, Hahn and nine fellow captured German scientists and physicists learned of the American atomic bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hahn was so distraught that the process he had discovered had been used to kill so many people that he contemplated suicide. Unlike some of the other German scientists present, he had played no part in Germany's atomic bomb development team. Throughout the later years of his life, he campaigned passionately against the use of nuclear energy as a weapon, suggesting that using the discovery in this way was a crime and was repeatedly nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. His integrity and scholarly excellence drew this phrase from the Max Planck Institute as part of his obituary in 1968. His name will be recorded in the history of humanity as the founder of the atomic age. The Max Planck Institute mourns its founder and a good and much-loved human being. And in 1999, he was voted in the German Focus magazine to be the third most important scientist of the 20th century after Albert Einstein and Max Planck. That was Sarah Castor-Perry looking back at this week in science history. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash. It featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney, and our guest Taylor Perron. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where each week we bring you the latest in science news, some interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.